0: there are journalists, and there are people in media who take very seriously what they do, and they will not leave the cliched and proverbial stone unturned to get at the truth. And if you're obfuscating or you're blocking the truth, they're going to go around you, over you, under you, or through you. And Sue Ann Levy is one of those true investigative journalists. She's a Toronto Sun and Sun Media investigative journalist, and she has a new book, which is going to be uh, available on Tuesday, Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. And uh, I've always, you know, I have to say this, first of all, I've I've always been a big fan, Sue Ann, and I always will be a big fan, and I've been reading your book. I got it yesterday. I haven't finished it, but I've been reading it. Uh, I've read a lot of it. I, I just I love what you're doing. I love what you've done. Congratulations on the book and on a great career.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Roy. Um, it, it's truly a labor of love. It took me three years to get all of this together. And, uh, you know, and uh, I'm very proud of, of what I've done. And uh, I think if you had to ask me again if I would do it while I'm working full time, I might shake my head, but uh, I'm very proud of, I of think what you
0: do it again.
1: Yeah, you think so? I think
0: you'd do it again. Yeah. I do. It's in your blood.
1: (laughs) Well, I am a bit of a workaholic, and I do talk about that in the book. But um, aside from that, I'm extremely passionate about what I do, and I have to say, after all these years, 26 years at the sun... I still absolutely love doing what I do and digging to get the truth. So,
0: so the, the I'm, I'm always fascinated by the title of a book. To, to me, the title speaks a lot about what the author, and I know there are people who work on titles with authors, yes. but ultimately, the title does speak a great deal to me about what the author is trying to say or will say in the book. So, your book is Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Yes. That's a mouthful.
1: Yes, and that Random House came up with the title, but as soon as they actually presented it to me, I thought it was just, my first reaction was, oh my God, it is a mouthful, but it is funny, and it just perfectly um, captures what I'm trying to say in the book, as you say. Uh, I grew up being an underdog, I lived in the closet for 20 years, Uh, I was assaulted twice, first time left. Virtually for dead, and I dealt with the trauma for many, many, many years. And I never felt that I had a voice. I certainly didn't feel I had a voice growing up, and certainly while I was living in the closet. And when I guess I found myself and uh, helped to tackle my demons, I decided that I was going to become a voice for others. In other words, a champion for the underdog. And so that speaks to the underdog part. And the muckraker, of course, is the fact that I won't, like you said in the intro, I like to think that I never stop digging until I do get to the truth. And it just absolutely drives me crazy when I hear about waste mismanagement and corruption in, in politics.
0: Imagine that. Imagine waste, mismanagement, and corruption. <laughs>
1: well it's so pervasive. Who would have thought where, where do we begin, Roy? It's Who so pervasive. Thought? <laughs> yes.
0: Sue Ann, one of the, the recurring themes and you start you wrote a column today, um, and it, you start your book about talking about you coming out as gay. And mm-hmm. you did that in your son column on Pride Day two thousand and seven. Right. Your right reaction was ninety nine percent positive. Was that the watershed moment in, in your life personally and professionally?
1: Uh, yeah, it I know was. you've done I a mean, lot
0: of investigative journalism before that, but...
1: Well, I think there were several watershed moments. I mean, I talk very openly in the book about going um, to see somebody, about tackling my demons. And um, I was at City Hall at that point, and I suppose very vulnerable, but... Uh, It was uh, a couple of years of, you know, intense looking inside and dealing with the demons. And one of them, of course, was living in the closet. And I think, you know, thanks to my magnificent wife, um, Denise Alexander, um, she was the one who encouraged me back in 2007, to write this column, Um, and mostly not because I, as I say in the piece today, I didn't want pity, I didn't want praise, but I wanted people to know that um, I had struggled with this for so many years. I wanted to be inspirational, and I also wanted people to know that you can be right of center and you can be gay, and you can um, be a fiscal conservative, and you can be gay.
0: But you're a bad lesbian.
1: Well, according to Kyle Ray, I am. No. And, and, and I read that. Yes, and, he, and I think when you ask about Watershed Moment, I think when I, I did do it, and believe me, I didn't sleep all weekend after I'd written the column knowing that it was going to appear, um, and not to mention the many years that I wrestled with uh, living in the closet, uh, I think the left response or lack of response uh, to my coming out was predictable. <laughs> But it was, it was very sad because it actually reinforced everything I had thought or actually when you say watershed moment, everything I wondered about them, whether they were truly compassionate and tolerant or was it only uh, to those that you know, sung the same tune. And I certainly found that out very quickly when I came out. And as I say in the excerpt today, two years later when I married Denise,
0: Uh, I want to run some names past you and some incidents past you that I read about in the book. Rob Ford, talk to us about the mayor who was the favorite target of the left, not only in Toronto, not only in Canada, but rapidly became...
1: In the United States. In the States. Well, I'll tell you what I thought of Rob Ford. First of all, I identified with him because I was bullied when I was young. And uh, I immediately saw... I knew Rob Ford for 13 years. I immediately saw... Uh, in the chapter, I write about Rob Ford, well as early on in his tenure as counsellor two thousand and two, how he was becoming the favorite target of the left at city hall and I start with i Talk about the fact that when he tried to save a few shekels at City Hall, you know, by cutting plant watering and cutting some of the plant watering being $78,000, uh, councillors couldn't water their own plants, so they were spending 78000 And how he got up and he tried to save shekels on their, you know, their lunches and the things that they, the, the frills, you know. Right. I always say, if you follow the pennies, the dollars will follow. Exactly. And I saw how he was bullied and how they um, treated him right from the time in 2002. You know, and they laughed at him. They joked. They vilified him. Um, he wasn't articulate. Uh, he was sweaty. He was uh, overweight. And let me tell you, some of the most overweight counselors on council, including Howard Moscow, loved to make him their target. Um, and these are all the troffers. Howard Moscow never avoiding a free buffet, you know, at City Hall. I used to see him do so, uh, rush up to the buffet, I should say. So, I mean, it was highly hypocritical. They savaged him. He was their favorite punching bag Um, from the time he became a counselor. And I watched this over the years, and it drove me crazy.
0: And yet, you know, the people loyal to Rob Ford stayed loyal to Rob Ford. Because Because
1: he was... He he practiced what he preached. Was he was a didn't genuine artist. He, uh, he he uh, met taxpayers and constituents one on one in their own homes and in coffee shops. He wasn't afraid to roll up his sleeves and go into Toronto community housing. He represents the antithesis of arrogant city hall, and I respected him for that. I did not uh, condone uh, or sanction. Uh, his uh, crack cocaine use, I didn't apologize for that. I never did. But I think the way he was treated, the uh, lack of empathy, the way he was vilified, I say in my chapter that Toronto, the left and the media and the leftists and the advocates sunk to a new low uh, during his tenure in office.
0: Now, in Underdog, you also write about the relationship between school board trustees and bureaucrats they nominally Oversee, and that's where Kathleen Wynne, the Premier of Ontario, got her political feet wet, as you yes. write.
1: Yes. Um, and uh, it's, it's just like um, the entry into politics is being a trustee on school boards, and that's where... You know, of course, Kathleen Wynne was a Toronto school trustee. She was a member of the Parent Network, and then she moved up the ranks to become an MPP, Minister of Education, and lo and behold, she's a premier. And she's no different, I might say, than she was as a trustee. She didn't respect taxpayers. She didn't respect uh, spending or, you know, overspending at, at the school board. She pushed for overspending. And what you see is what you get today. And I say that trustees largely are propped up by unions, and most of them on the school board, two-thirds of them now, are um, union candidates. The unions have put money in to elect these trustees, and I dare say taxpayers don't have a chance.
0: You know, if nobody applies the brakes, they're never going to slow down.
1: No, and it's very difficult, and then what happens is that uh, the trusteeship is the entry point into politics and there are many who then can proceed to city hall. Olivia Chow, Paula Fletcher, Janet Davis, Pam McConnell. They were all school trustees. Howard I. All those people who are uh, either former counselors or are now wasting tons of money at City Hall and do not care one bit about taxpayers or their constituents, for that matter.
0: Let me stay in the school environment for a moment and talk to you and ask you to comment, please, or share with us the issue of bullying. Now, you you yeah. wrote about that for the Sun and in yeah. your book. School right. boards. I've often, I've almost been of the view that school boards write and enact zero tolerance uh, policies a zero-tolerance-to-bullying policy, Sue Ann, and then they hide behind those policies when they do nothing to really curb bullying. And you wrote about 14-year-old Melissa Black.
1: Yes. And, you know, it's interesting, Roy, because I covered the education beat back in the 90s, and then I came back to it after 20 years in more of an investigative capacity, which is when I wrote about my Melissa, Melissa Black, who was bullied um, in her Scarborough school for three years, and nearly the young lady... Uh, you know, wanted to take her life over it, and the principal, the school trustee, the superintendent, none of them handled it properly at all until basically I got into the mix um, and wrote and exposed them. So 20 years later, uh, bullying was a real issue back in the 90s. They enacted all these policies, zero tolerance, expulsions, this, that, and the other thing, and now it's basically hit and miss. It depends on the school. It depends on the principal. There are still many principals in the Toronto system and in the Catholic system who don't want to admit that they have a problem, do not want to admit that they have a violence problem, and because they figure that that will affect the perception of their school, which is really sad and, and actually disgraceful.
0: Uh, being uh, an investigative journalist and doing what you do uh, is always... It can be a dangerous profession, <laughs> and and it and it you were as you said you you were physically attacked twice. Tell us about that.
1: Well, um, the and it's it's made me a lot tougher. I think I say in the book that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, the first was when I was 21. I was at Carleton University. Um, I was trying to sublet my apartment. A young, a, a a man answered an ad. It was on St Patrick's Day. Uh, I didn't think to have anyone with me. I was seeing a very nice young man at the time. didn't think to have him with me. This guy came armed with a lead pipe, and uh, when he was certain that I was absolutely alone, he um, attacked me from behind and basically beat me up and then tried to strangle me. And I think what scared him off is that he thought that he had killed me. Um, that was when I was 21 in Ottawa, who would have thought... In 1978 that you have to worry about those sort of things fast forward to 2005 um, I am trying to buy a bench from a store up the street from my condo the young man who sold it to me came after work to put it together and proceeded to expose himself in my condo and uh, wanted to sexually assault me but because of the previous experience I was able to talk him down never got my day in court the first time, but I did get this young man to court. He pled guilty, he to sexual assault, was listed on the sex offenders re- registry. I had to fight the system to get him through court, and uh, I have to say that after I went to court, and he was he pled guilty and and gave his apology. His mother came up to me after the the court proceeding was over and thanked me,
0: um, and actually
1: thanked me and apologized. Well. Yeah.
0: That was was good Um, for you to have experienced what what you did experience, particularly in that first assault. Horrifying to read. Um, Stephen Harper. Yes. Your blunt assessment of Stephen Harper declaring that a Muslim woman should not wear a veil during swearing of the oath of citizenship. Arguably, that was the hinge on which the 2015 uh, election, if I can use the word, pivoted it.
1: I would say yes, and largely. I mean, I think basically if you ask people today, they'll say, I just grew tired of him. And then you say, well, why did you grow tired of him? I even had a friend say that to me yesterday. I grew tired of him. I'm not sure why people grew tired of him. I thought he had done some tremendous things with the economy. I certainly backed him in terms of his support for Israel, and he... Certainly had a conscience when it came to Israel, and you know, and so I'm not so sure. I think in our, um, I guess in our psyche, we feel that after a certain amount of time, we've got to overthrow whomever is in power and yeah. put someone else in, no matter what. Now, in terms of the uh, the whole Niqab debate, yes, I think it certainly helped uh, drive him out of office, and this is why I respected him because he actually stood up to this crazy nonsense of, you know, people coming to our country, and I have a whole chapter on pandering to Muslim BS, basically, uh, people coming to our country uh, from another land seeking freedom and democracy and then trying to impose their religious, um, I guess, practices that harken back to the 15th century on us. It's crazy.
0: You know, it's interesting, and I I have 45 seconds here. Uh, There was a woman in in France, when they passed the law, that said uh, no niqabs to be worn. Mm -hmm. There was a Muslim woman in France who took the French government to court before the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court of Human Rights sided with the French government and said, yeah, you're right, the niqab can be outlawed, and the European Court of Human Rights ruling allows for no appeal.
1: You know, and good for them, because I think political correctness has driven this crazy nonsense to the pendulum is flung so far to the politically correct side that we're afraid to say anything. We're afraid to speak up. Right. But what part of being uh, a free country... Uh, speaks to allowing someone to wear something that goes back to 15th century.
0: I have to stop you because of the clock, but there you go. Uh, the book is Underdog: Confessions of a Right Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker, and it's Suwan Levy, investigative journalist with the Toronto Sun. I'm enjoying you, the read. Roy. I'm going to finish it tonight.
1: Thank you. And lots of juicy juicies in there, I hope.
0: You betcha. Thank you. Thanks, Suanne.